All right, everybody, we are picking up in our study on um, subject of soteriology. Remember that soteriology is the study of salvation. It derives from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And uh, we are, I think, about, I think we're about 30 lessons into this now, so about 30 hours, and I suspect we have probably that or more. Uh, to go through as we uh, mine into the Word of God and, and you know, look at this subject um, quite carefully. And I'm revising my notes uh, from day to day. In fact, I'll send out an email and then two hours later send out another email with revised notes. I added two pages of content to uh, tonight's lesson, and uh, so that will happen on occasion. I'm constantly revising, refining uh, the material here. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into the subject of forgiveness. We are uh, looking at uh, we're doing a, a we're looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology is what we're doing, and so uh, I'm working through this alphabetically, uh, looking at these various words. I'm writing an article right now, uh, and I'm making the case that there are four kinds, or really, it's an observation from the biblical text that there are four uh, different kinds of forgiveness that are mentioned in the Bible. So there are four different kinds of forgiveness that are mentioned in the Bible. Two relate to God, which is what we're going to look at this evening, and the other two relate to humanity. The two categories of forgiveness that relate to God are one, judicial, and the other is familial, and we'll look at both of those this evening. Uh, The other two categories of forgiveness relate to humanity. And so we have, uh, we have two categories that relate to God, which is our vertical, and then we have two categories that relate to uh, humanity uh, horizontally and, and re- our relationship to other people. Uh, very briefly, the two categories of forgiveness that we have with humanity uh, is one, a, uh, a, a grace forgiveness that we extend to others uh, who don't ask for it, don't earn it, or deserve it. And, uh, and this, is a grace, this is a forgiveness that we extend and uh, whether or not they seek it, whether or not they seek uh, uh, reconciliation, whether or not they own their offense uh, and seek reconciliation uh, really has to do with phase two or part two of forgiveness because there is a, uh, there is a forgiveness, again, that is one-sided. I think of uh, one of the passages I was looking at was 1 Corinthians thirteen five, which talks about love, and it says, uh, Love is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. It does not keep a record of wrongs. And, uh, and so that means that we forgive people. I, I think of even when Christ was on the cross and he prayed to those who were crucifying him and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And uh, of course, I don't think that any of them were seeking forgiveness uh, or even uh, you know, sought uh, to benefit from what the Lord was offering, but nonetheless, it reflects the heart of the Lord there. But nonetheless, there is a forgiveness that we can extend to other people. And in many ways, that's uh, not only healthy in our relationship with God, I would say first and foremost, but healthy for us on a very practical level, because holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't work out very well. Uh, but then there is what I think of as a transactional forgiveness, where somebody has offended. And so they come and they seek reconciliation. And so you can extend a forgiveness uh, to that person and it brings about a reconciliation 
in the relationship. And so there's a transactional action uh, aspect of forgiveness as well on the human level. But but that's subject uh, for an article uh, here in the near future. But what we're looking at here tonight, what we're looking at tonight is forgiveness as it relates to our relationship with God. So again, we're going to look at this in two categories. We're going to look at judicial, and then we're going to look at familial. And of course, as usual, I'll be chasing down lots of scripture references. So Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, we should understand, is the basis for our forgiveness of sins. Uh, scripture reveals in Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and this according to the riches of his grace. And so uh, this is something that God extends to us. It is an expression of his grace. Uh, but notice that it is in him, it is in Christ, uh, that we have redemption, and this through his blood. And as I mentioned before, that the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. In fact, it's the only currency of heaven that God the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now the word forgiveness here uh, translates the Greek word ephesus. Ephesus. It translates the Greek noun here, ephesus, which according to Badag, and uh, for those of you that don't know, I've mentioned before, but I'll mention it again. Badag is uh, an abbreviation for Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, uh, the four scholars that are noted uh, for writing a lexicon. In this case, this is a very scholarly lexicon. Uh, it's called the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. A lexicon is just a dictionary, is what it is. But this is a Greek dictionary. It's an expensive Greek dictionary, but it's a good Greek dictionary. Uh, and then I use another dictionary, a Hebrew one. It's called Hallet, which is the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. But this uh, dictionary here, according to Badag, Ephesus refers to, quote, the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt or punishment, pardon, cancellation, end quote. And so it really... Uh, communicates the idea of releasing somebody from a debt that they cannot pay. It means releasing so because when somebody offends us on a personal level, uh, we feel that an injustice has occurred and we feel like, uh, like, 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 uh, like a debt uh, has been incurred. And so it's the idea of, of releasing somebody from a debt. Now, Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, uh, he said that God has forgiven us all our transgressions. He has forgiven us all our transgressions. And uh, the word all there translates the Greek adjective pas, P-A-S. And, uh, and in this context, it refers to all of our sins, uh, not only the sins that we have committed, but the sins that we will commit. It, it encapsulates all sin, uh, past, present, and future. So uh, it's the understanding here again that God has forgiven us all our transgressions, and notice having erased what? The certificate of debt uh, with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And it says that he has taken it out of the way, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And you'll find these references to the cross keep coming up, and you'll find references to the cross... And you'll find references to the blood of Christ. Uh, these things will keep occurring because it's at the cross 
And it's what Christ accomplished at the cross, which is the basis for uh, our forgiveness of sins. Now, in Colossians 2.13, there's a different word that's used. It's, a, it's another common word. We, we, we've already seen the definition of Ephesus, but Colossians 2.13, the word forgiveness translates the Greek word karizomai, karizomai. And if you look at the first part of that word, the C-H, uh, the, the, the key alpha uh, rho iota, uh, which we would say C-H-A-R-I here if we were to transliterate it into English. But that's like the root word for codice, which is the word we get for grace. It's the word we get for grace. And, uh, and here, again, according to Bedag, uh, it means to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing, forgiving pardon. And so it's a display of grace. And again, and, and you have to understand that when you're talking about grace, grace is undeserved kindness. It is unwarranted love. It is unmerited favor. It is the kindness that one person shows to another who does not deserve it. In fact, that's really what makes it grace, uh, is the fact that the other person doesn't deserve it. And so it is really born out of the bounty uh, and goodness of the giver, and the open-handedness of the giver, the fact that one is willing to give freely uh, out of one's own resources. And it is no way, it is no, in no way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object. And it has more to do with the one, with the character of the one who forgives uh, than really the beauty or worth of the object. But that's what makes grace, grace. Now, for us as humans, grace does not come natural to us. Grace is something that has to be taught. And I learned this many, many years ago, uh, that grace is something that has to be taught. And, uh, and, uh, and so we're actually going to hit on grace here very shortly, because in our uh, alphabetical listing of these words, we're about to come up on grace here real quick. So hold on to your seats on that one. Uh, but again, it translates the Greek word karizomai, which, it, which again means to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing, forgiving or to forgive or to pardon. And this reveals the loving and gracious heart of God towards lost sinners for whom Christ died. And I, I keep going back to Romans 5.8. It's one of those uh, key verses uh, that keeps popping up. And remember that when you think about the cross, there's, there's two attributes that really converge at the cross. I mean, there's many attributes, but two stand out. Uh, in particular. One is the attribute of righteousness, because remember that God is holy, and remember that the gospel, when we think about the gospel, the gospel is the solution to a problem. Uh, it's the good news that follows the bad news. Uh, and uh, too often, and I've been guilty of this too, but too often we can present the gospel to somebody, and we can give them the what without really giving them the why. And if we explain, look, that Christ died for you, he was buried, he was raised again on the third day, and if you trust in him, you'll have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the gift of righteousness, and you explain that, but they don't really understand the value of the cross. They don't really understand the why behind the what. Then sometimes we shortchange them. We don't really give them the full picture. And so when I'm explaining the gospel, I will explain it very briefly, but I will say, listen, God is holy and God is righteous. And to say that God is holy means that he is separate from sin. And the only thing God can do with sin is to condemn it because he's absolutely righteous. Habakkuk 1.13 says you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And 1 John 1.5 makes it very clear that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so the, uh, now that's, again, that being part of the problem, that's not a problem for God. That's a problem for us. 
Uh, and the problem for us is because uh, we, are, we are quite uh, skilled at producing sin. We're quite able at producing sin. We're quite uh, capable of giving offense. The problem is, is we can produce it, we just can't fix it. And we can't deal with the problem of sin once we produce it. And so uh, God is holy, mankind is sinful, and we're in trouble. Because if there is not a solution to the problem of sin, of our sin, then uh, we will spend eternity away from God forever in the lake of fire. That's the danger, you see. And so when you understand the problem that God is holy and righteous and mankind is sinful and that we're in trouble because we are completely unable to solve the problem of sin, that's what makes the cross beautiful. Because the cross is God's solution to the problem of sin. The cross is God's solution to the problem of sin because we couldn't fix it. But God, because he loved us, provided the solution. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news about what God did to reconcile us to himself. And, uh, and reconciliation is something that we have talked about and we will talk about again because it's a very, very important doctrine. But God uh, seeks to reconcile us to himself, but the cross is where we have to meet him. And so the cross keeps coming up because the cross is the solution. And at the cross, we see the righteousness of God coming to judge Christ in our place. And he did. And remember that Christ went to the cross willingly, John 10, 18. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so he willingly went to the cross. And he endured the trials, he endured the mockings, the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorn, the, the public embarrassment of sharing the cross, the crucifixion itself, even the mocking during the crucifixion. He endured all of these things. And that really wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was when the sky grew dark from noon to three, and as Christ hung between heaven and earth, God the Father took all of the sin of humanity and placed it upon Christ and judged him. And we see the righteousness of God at the cross, and we should see it as a place of judgment. We really should. And we should see uh, God judging Christ in his place, and Christ willingly went. Remember, the Father sent, and Christ went. And he willingly went and laid down his life. And he even said that. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. And, of course, we've covered this. So he goes to the cross, and he dies a death he did not deserve. And we looked at passages like Romans 5.8 and 1 Peter 3.18 and 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4, where it uses the Greek preposition huper, which is one of two. Uh, the other Greek preposition is anti, it's the stronger of the two. But it's the preposition of substitution, where Christ went and died as a substitute for sinners. And he did this not, not because we're sweet and lovely, because we were not and we are not. Remember Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love. And see, that's the other attribute we see at the cross. We see righteousness, judging our sin, but we see love towards the sinner, the one who gives offense. And we don't earn that. We don't deserve that. We don't merit that in any way. If we got what we deserved in life, we would all be dead and we would all be damned. Because none of us deserve the love of God. None of us deserve the grace of God. None of us deserve this. And this is something that is offered to us as, as an expression of God's grace. It's an expression of God's grace. And this is part of what makes grace, grace. Because it is born out of the, out of the bounty of God's heart and his goodness towards us. And again, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... You see, that's the true estimation of humanity. And I've covered this before because the Bible does not give a flattering view of humanity. I mean, we are said to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We are ungodly. We are enemies of God. 
We are sinners. We are spiritually dead. We are in a place of total helplessness. We cannot save ourselves at all. But for the grace of God, all humanity would be lost. And God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and come to faith in Christ and to trust in him. But again, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the word for there translates that Greek preposition, who pair, one of the two prepositions we looked at not too long ago. And it's a preposition of substitution. And it means that Christ died as a substitute for us. And so all of our sins were in fact judged at the cross. And again, we have to always keep the cross center to these studies of what we're talking about and the death of Christ and his shed blood upon the cross. So again, when you think of the word my grace is uh, very much rooted into that, and it means to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing, to forgive, to pardon. And this reveals the loving and gracious heart again of God towards lost sinners for whom Christ died. I love Warren Wearsby, by the way, and his books are very good. If you ever get a chance to get his material, he's, I cite him often. I like Wearsby. He passed a few years ago. We lost a good man. But he left us a rich wealth of material. And this is taken from uh, his Bible Exposition Commentary, Volume 2, page 127. He says, When he shed his blood for sinners, Jesus Christ canceled the huge debt that was against sinners because of their disobedience to God's holy law. In this way, his son paid the full debt when he died on the cross, end quote. And by the way, that language is very intentional because if you go back and you look at John 19.30, what was, what was the, the last thing that Jesus uh, said upon the cross? Uh, well, the, one of the things that he said there at the very end, he said what? It is finished. And he used the Greek word tetelestai, which is in the perfect tense. And it means that something is completed in the past, but the emphasis in the perfect tense in the Greek is always on the abiding results. It's like when you throw a rock into a pond and you see the ripple and you're following the ripple out. Well, the perfect tense means that something is a past action is complete, but the emphasis is upon the abiding results. And what it means that, that, uh, that it was finished, our salvation was finished at the cross with the result that it stands finished for all time. It stands finished today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. But the word tetelestai uh, is a business term, and uh, uh, archaeologists have, have found uh, ancient uh, Greek manuscripts uh, with bills, bills written for people, like, uh, like let's say you have a rat infestation, okay, we'll come up with something imaginary, so you have a rat infestation, so you call some exterminator out. Uh, well, Joe Schmo, the Roman, uh, comes out to your home, and uh, he sets all these traps, and he solves your extermination problem, and he says, oh, by the way, that'll be 1,500 denarii. Okay, and uh, and you pay him and you say, well, that's awful high. I feel like I'm being raked over the coals, but I'll pay that. So you go ahead and pay him the fifteen hundred denarii uh, because he dealt with your rat problem. Well, he's going to give you a bill. And at the end of that bill, it's going to say to tell And you know what that means? Paid in full. And you find it all over these documents in the ancient world. Tetelestai means paid in full. It's finished. It's paid in full because it's a debt that has been paid. And it's just, it's just an everyday word. It's just an everyday word in the ancient world. But it means paid in full. And so when, uh, when Wearsby here says in this way his son paid the full debt when he died on the cross, he's capturing that language of the use of the Greek word tetelestai in John chapter 19, verse 30. Now, according to Norman Geisler, he says, and I've got a quote here, and this is from his Systematic Theology. And this is going to be from volume 3, page 227. He says the Greek word for forgiveness is ephesus, 
which means to forgive or to remit one's sins. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, he says, declares that God cannot forgive atonement, uh, cannot forgive without atonement. For the law requires, according to Hebrews 9.22, for the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And this is why I use the language that the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm, that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. It is, in fact, the precious blood of Christ, as Peter calls it, the precious blood of Christ. And uh, 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 Geisler goes on, he says, Paul announced in Acts uh, 13, 38, he says that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And again, I'm going to sidetrack here for just a moment, because the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Again, it's through Jesus. Everything has to be about Christ and what he did on the cross. We look at the cross and we say Christ died for us. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day. He was seen by many people. And we take that as historical fact because the Bible is written as historical fact in real time, real people, real places, real events. And we accept the deposition, the written record uh, concerning these events around Christ. And knowing this about him, what he did for us, we are then called to believe in him, to trust in him. We assent to that truth. We are persuaded by that truth. And we trust in him. We, we, we turn from everything and everyone, any system of works, any system of uh, that we may rely upon, and we, we throw it all away and we trust in Christ and Christ alone because man needs only Christ to be saved. So again, Acts 13, 38 says that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Uh, Geisler goes on. He says, forgiveness does not erase the sin. He says, history cannot be changed, but forgiveness does erase the record of the sin. And I have this highlighted here. He says, like a pardon... The crime of the accused is not expunged from history, but is deleted from his account. Now, I'm going to tell you what. I just about shed a tear when I read that. Because that touches me on a very, very personal level. Because I was somebody who lived in Vegas from 1980 to 1990, and for seven years of my life, I got caught up in the Vegas culture in the worst possible way. I got caught up into all sorts of uh, drugs and criminal activity, dropped out of school when I was in the 10th grade, when I was 16, and uh, I was a little troublemaker. And I got into the drug scene real bad, and I was arrested about six times as a juvenile and about six times as an adult. Uh, mainly for drug charges. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't into violence. That wasn't my thing. Uh, I knew people who were, but I avoided them like the plague because didn't go for that. Uh, but I was more into the drugs and sales of drugs and use of drugs and got into some pretty hardcore stuff. Uh, smoked a lot of pot, dropped acid about a hundred times, ate a lot of mushrooms, used methamphetamines, cocaine. Uh, PCP was my drug of choice for about four and a half years. It's quite nasty when you smoke it, but the high is crazy. Uh, and that's what I got into. And uh, by the time uh, 1990 rolled around, excuse me, 1988 rolled around, summer of 1988, I'd been homeless for a year, excuse me, I'd been suicidal for a year, and I'd been living on the streets of Las Vegas for weeks, and a Salvation Army on two separate occasions, 
And, uh, and I remember the morning waking up on the grass with dew on one side of my body and my long hair stuck on one side of my body and, you know, walking out onto Charleston Street and sitting down on a bench at seven o'clock in the morning, watching traffic go by and homeless guy comes down, sits next to me, starts talking about Reaganomics. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's talking about, but he's yak yakking along. And there I am sitting at Charleston Street, seven o'clock in the morning with Tarina's Pizza behind me. And uh, I'm just sitting there and I'm just evaluating my life. And I'm having an aha moment because I came to faith in Christ when I was younger. My grandmother led me to Christ, and she taught me a better life. And she taught me to memorize the scripture, Psalm 1, the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 100, and many, many other passages of the Bible. And I knew Christ as my Savior. And yet I turned away like many people do, and I was a prodigal son. And even the prodigal son knew he was a son. Even when he, even when he was eating with the pigs, he wasn't a pig. He was still a son. And when he, when, he, when he came to his senses, he said, hey, I'll return to my father. I'll live like a servant. You know, maybe he'll take me back. That's better than living where I'm at. And when he returned to his father, his father was watching for him from a distance. And his father saw the son. And the text says something quite odd, something you would not expect. It says the father ran to the son. And that, that was very undignified in the ancient world. Old, old men didn't run. But in the context, the love of the father, uh, it basically uh, was uh, dignity be damned because he's going to run to his son. He sees his son and expresses the love of the father towards his son. And when he, when he catches the son, he puts a robe upon him and a ring upon him. And, he, and, he, and he's so ready to welcome him back. And he says, my son has returned to me. And he recognizes the son and the son recognizes the father. And he was always a son, even when he was out and about. And that was me. I was living as the prodigal son. And then after, I, I, after my time of being homeless, I decided, well, I need to turn myself in because I was running from the law, and I went to prison for two years. Served a two-year term. Didn't serve the full two years, uh, but I served my term and then was released uh, in, in uh, 1990. And I moved out of Vegas because it was a terrible place to live, and I knew if I'd stayed there, I knew I'd continue to drugs, and that was no good. Uh, so I got out, and I was, I was in the Word. And when I turned myself in, I turned myself in as a, as a Christian, by the way. And I was, a, I was a growing believer. I read my Bible hours every day, studied the Bible, shared the gospel with people. I was one of those uh, on-fire people, <laughs> you know, when I, was in, when I was in prison. Guys knew when they saw me coming. I was like, oh, boy, here comes Steve. <laughs> Be ready. He's going to share the gospel with you. That's right. Might even try to pray for you, you know. So, so um, but anyway, when I got out, I was still on fire for the Lord. My wife will tell you, I mean, we, we talked for a long time, and we dated for a year, and then we got married and, um, and been married uh, 33 years now. In fact, uh, January 7th made 33 years for it. But after, after 15 years, my wife and I uh, flew out uh, to Nevada. We flew up to uh, Reno and, and went down to Carson City. And on February 10th, 2005, I had the privilege of going to the Nevada Supreme Court where I walked in and I met and had a brief interaction with Governor Kenny Gwynn and, uh, and the Nevada Attorney General and uh, 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 all of the Supreme Court justices minus one. They were all there. It was in the bench. It was in the Nevada Supreme Court building. And after a short visit with them, uh, they unanimously awarded me a full pardon uh, for my criminal past, for the crime that sent me to prison, which was sales of a drugs. It was the sales of a drugs charge. But even with the pardon, now the pardon restored all my rights, and a few months later I walked into a cheaper-than-dirt gun shop and uh, purchased a firearm legally. I've been carrying ever since. Got my license a few years later, and I'm legal tender. 
But the thing of it is, is that, um, is that they say a pardon forgives and sealing forgets. And so a few months after I got my pardon, I appealed to a judge in Clark County, Nevada. And when she realized that I got my pardon from the governor of Nevada, uh, she, she agreed to have my record sealed. And so uh, a few weeks after she had, uh, had, had, had authorized that, my records were sealed. And right now, if you do a criminal background check on me, even through the FBI, it is white as snow. There's nothing there because it has been sealed. Now, that resonates with me because when I reflect back on my, on my past, I can tell you there was crime that was committed. There were drugs that were used. But because I'm pardoned and because those records are sealed, there's nothing there. And anybody who does a check on me, it's nothing. It's white as snow. Now, that resonates me with, on a very personal level because God has pardoned me of my sin. And that's what he does with anybody who comes to faith in Christ. And they say, oh, well, Steve, you lived a terrible life. Well, listen, there's none righteous. No, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're all guilty of something somewhere enough to condemn us and damn us forever. Unless we get pardoned from the Supreme Court of Heaven. From God himself. Because we've all fallen short in some way. And so again, forgiveness again does not re- re- erase the record of sin. I can recall it. It's there. And, but like a pardon, the crime of the accused is not expunged from history, but it is deleted from the account. Your record is clean. Now that takes a little bit to wrap your brain around. Let me tell you, it takes a little bit to wrap your brain around uh, to understand that concept. And I thank God for the pardon that I get. And I'll tell you what, it was the grace of God that opened up that pardon for me to be able to get that. Pure and simple, it's the grace of God and nothing more. So closing out uh, his comment here, he says, Hence it is, it is in Christ Jesus that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace. End quote. And so that's absolutely true. Again, it has to do with the grace of God. It has to do with the death of Christ at the cross. Paul ends here, and I'm citing from his Moody Handbook of Theology. He says, quote, Forgiveness is the legal act of God whereby he removes the charges that were held against the sinner because a proper satisfaction or atonement for those sins has been made. Let me pause for a moment. Christ bore those sins. They have been dealt with. And when you believe in Christ, the benefits of the cross are applied to you, and at that moment, you receive the benefits of forgiveness. Let me move on here with this quote here. He says, there are several Greek words used to describe forgiveness. One is charizomai, which is related to the word grace, and it means to forgive out of grace. It is used of cancellation of a debt in Colossians 2.13. He goes on, he says, the context emphasizes that our debts were nailed to the cross with Christ's atonement freely forgiving the sins that were charged against us. The most common word for forgiveness is afiemi, he says, which means to let go, to release, or to send away. The noun form is used in Ephesians 1.7 where it stresses the believer's sins have been forgiven or sent away because of the riches of God's grace as revealed in the death of Christ. And I highlighted this section here. He says, forgiveness forever solves the problem of sin in the believer's life. All sins, past, present, and future. He goes on, he says, this is distinct from the daily cleansing from sin that is necessary to maintain fellowship with God. Forgiveness is manward, 
Man had, man had sinned and needed to have his sins dealt with and removed, end quote. Now, he touches on something here. He introduces the understanding here that there's two kinds of forgiveness we have with God. There is the once-for-all judicial cleansing that we have. And that happens at the moment of faith in Christ. All of your sins have been judged at the cross. And listen, all sins were future from the time of Christ. When you think about when he, because Christ died for me 2,000 years ago, but all of my sins were future from the time of his death. But God being God reached into the future, reached into the past, took all those sins and placed them upon Christ. But then here he draws that distinction from the daily cleansing. Now that's the familial forgiveness. That's the familial forgiveness. Now, by the way, we'll, 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 we'll see this again when we hear in a few months once we get into talking about uh, uh, the spiritual life, phase two of the Christian life, because we're going to spend some time on that. So we'll circle back to 1 John 1, 9 again, because that's a very important doctrine. Going on in the notes here, under the Old Testament system of sacrifices, we are told in Romans 3.25 that in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Don't miss that language. He passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over them. Now, remember, we talked about, we've already hit the word expiation, because remember the word expiation has to do with the removal of sins. If you do a study in the Old Testament of the word atonement, the word that you'll find predominantly is the Hebrew word kafar. Kafar. And kafar means a covering. And so when somebody brought an animal sacrifice to God and they came to the temple and they would walk into the courtyard, they would bring their cute little lamb and they would put the lamb on the altar and they would put their hands on the head of the lamb and the priest would put his hand on the head of the lamb and you would confess your sin and then the priest would reach around with a knife and would kill the animal. And it was designed to be shocking. It was designed to be an offense but it was designed to teach you something. It was designed to teach you that God is holy and he demands payment for sin. And you are the offender. And he's willing to, uh, he's willing to judge your sin in a substitute. Now, these animal sacrifices were offered year after year after year after year for centuries until Jesus Christ shows up. And in John 1.29, John the Baptist says, uh, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is not the lamb of some human being who brought their little lamb. This is the lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. You see, that's expiation. That's the actual removal of sin. It's the actual removal of sin. And so Jesus Christ, when he came, he actually took it away. But again, when you think of the Old Testament sacrifices, God simply passed over the sins previously committed. Now, the animal sacrifices did not remove sin. It was a temporary arrangement whereby God passed over the sins of his people until the time when Christ would come and die for the sins of the world. Now, concerning Romans 3.25, Harold Honer, I've got a quote here from him, and uh, and this is from his Ephesians uh, exegetical commentary, which is a very large commentary, but it's good if you ever can afford it. It's good to have in your library. But he says, quote, This has the idea of a temporary suspension of punishment for sins committed before the cross. Whereas Ephesus is the permanent cancellation of or release from the punishment for sin because it has been paid for by Christ's sacrifice, end quote. So you see, he's, he's, he's capturing the idea here of the Romans 3.25 passages, and there's others. We're just, we're just touching on this enough to communicate the idea of it. Merrill F. Unger, and this is taken... Um, uh, this is taken from the Unger's Bible Dictionary, which, by the way, it's a, it's a good single-volume set. If you don't have it, it's good to have for your library. 
Uh, He says here, quote, The great foundational truth respecting the believer in relationship to his sins is the fact that his salvation comprehends the forgiveness of all his trespasses, past, present, and future. Notice, so far as condemnation is concerned. Don't miss that, so far as condemnation is concerned. You see, we're looking at forgiveness here in a judicial sense, as God is a judge in the Supreme Court of Heaven, and he, is, he has judged our sin. There is no condemnation. Now, you can commit sin and be out of fellowship with God, and we're about to hit that here in a minute, but as far as condemnation is concerned, there's no condemnation. That's why Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3.18 tells us he who believes in him is not judged. Not going to happen. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. So we have a judicial forgiveness, all sins, past, present, and future. You will, it, 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 it guarantees that you will never face the lake of fire. Never. Never happen. Closing out on Unger's quote here, he says, Since Christ has vicariously borne all sin, and since the believer standing in Christ is complete, he is perfected forever in Christ. When a, now notice here, when a believer sins, he is subject to chastisement from the Father, but never to condemnation with the world. End quote. Now listen, if you get out of line as a believer, if you get into a lifestyle of sin, whether that's mental attitude sins, verbal sins, sins of the flesh, sins of omission, sins of commission, or whatever it happens to be, a grouping of all of them, if you get into that for a period of time, trust me, uh, he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you're operating in status quo carnality, which it is possible for a Christian to live in carnality, that's possible. It's possible for any Christian to commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit. Uh, That's possible. You have that capacity. And, uh, and we actually, we're going to do, because we're going we're gonna to look at some uh, characters in the Bible, we're going to see how bad uh, some believers can sin. So hold on to your seats on that. We're going we're to be looking at that in the future, too. But never condemnation. Never condemnation. Discipline? Yeah. And that's avoidable. That's where 1 John 1, 9 comes in and getting back into the filling of the Spirit and walking with God. So going on in the notes here, though Christ died for everyone... The benefit of forgiveness is available only to those who trust in him as Savior. The benefit of forgiveness, again, is available only to those who trust in him as Savior. Henry Thiessen here, and I'm quoting from his uh, uh, lectures in systematic theology. This is by Henry Clarence Thiessen and Vernon Dirksen, uh, their lectures in systematic theology. He says, quote, The death of Christ made forgiveness possible but not necessary since Christ died voluntarily. God is still entitled to say on what conditions man may receive forgiveness, end quote. And there is only one condition, and that's faith in Christ. That's it. You see, God has made it so simple for us that a child can be saved. And, and sometimes it's easier to lead a child to faith in Christ than it is to some adults because they're so saturated with human viewpoint. Now, going on in the notes here, judicial forgiveness, and I'm using that language carefully, judicial forgiveness, as God is a judge in the Supreme Court of Heaven. Judicial forgiveness of sins is available to all, but each person must exercise their own volition and turn to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Uh, Let me go back to this passage in John 3.18. 
John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already. And why has he been judged already? Notice what the text says. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, he's judged for one reason and one reason only, and that's because he, he has not believed. You see, his, his going to the lake of fire is nobody's fault but his. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And why? Because, and there's the cause, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So very straightforward. Now, the record of Scripture, according to Acts 4.12, is that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ alone, and it is exclusively Christ. No one else. Nothing more. And according to Acts 10.43, again, everyone who believes in him, what? Receives forgiveness of sins, according to Acts 10.43. Everyone who believes in him, you see, and that's the key. At the moment of faith in Christ, what? Receives forgiveness of sins. You see, the benefits of the cross are applied at the moment of salvation. Now, that's in the judicial sense. Now, let's jump into the familial sense here. Let's talk about familial forgiveness. Familial forgiveness has to do with family. It has to do with giving an offense to God, who is our Father. You see, prior to faith in Christ, God is not our Father. I mean, you think of in John chapter 8, I think it's verse 44, where Peter, excuse me, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you are of your Father, who? The devil. And so until somebody comes to faith in Christ, they are not a child of God. You can't pray to God. You can't call God Father if he's not. He has to be your father. You have to have faith in Christ. Uh, Galatians 3.26, we are all sons of God or children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. I had to perform a funeral service uh, about uh, 12, 13 years ago on a friend of mine, a very, very godly woman named uh, Diane, Diana, and, uh, Diana Brooks, and uh, a very godly believer. And she, she passed quite suddenly. She graduated to heaven. Uh, she got her graduation, and she, she's in heaven. Her final breath here on earth was followed by her first breath in heaven, and of course, what a breath that must have been. Uh, but when her family came out from New York, there was uh, some discussion. I wound up uh, doing the funeral service, which was, turned out to be very lovely as well. Uh, a lot of people heard the gospel, and I knew Diana. I knew, I knew her, and she was on fire for the Lord. This woman loved God and loved his word, and she was, I mean, she was a very grace-oriented believer, very doctrinally minded. And I loved having a very rich theological mind. And I knew she would want me to share the gospel with everybody who, who attended. And they heard it. I guarantee you they heard it. But there was a concern about what scripture reference we would put on her, uh, uh, on her tombstone. And we wound up settling on Galatians, because this was one of her favorite passages, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, which says, For you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus. And so she, she's still sharing the gospel. For everybody that walks by and looks at her tombstone, that's what it says, Diana Brooks, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. See, it's very simple. So she's still witnessing, even, even, uh, even though she's graduated from heaven, she still has a testimony here on earth. And uh, uh, quite a wonderful woman. I was very honored to uh, have her attend a, a church where I was pastoring some years ago. Amen. Yes, and for those of you that know her, you know what I'm talking about. 
and so going on here, we talk about familial forgiveness, but again, God is your father. And so you call him father. So when you sin, you sin again, you break fellowship. You don't lose your salvation, impossibly. You can't do that. Because all sins have been judged at the cross. And for you to lose your salvation, well, that's double jeopardy. That means you're paying that, that means the same sin is being judged twice, and that, that doesn't fly. So from the moment of our spiritual birth until we leave this world for heaven, we are in Christ and all our sins are judicially forgiven. It's a one and done deal. It's a one and done deal. And that's why when you look at the three phases of salvation, when you look at the three phases of salvation, phase one is a one and done deal. You are born again. It occurs at a moment in time. At the moment of faith in Christ, you are justified. That's the language that theologians use. That's the language the Bible uses. You are justified. Justified is a legal term. Justified before who? God as a judge sitting on his throne in the Supreme Court of heaven. You are justified. That's a one and done deal. And phase two of your Christian life is sanctification. That's the process. That's where you are advancing to spiritual maturity. That's why you come to Bible class. That's why you want to come in and sit in and listen to the theology and listen to the Bible being taught because you're concerned about your spiritual growth because God is concerned about your spiritual growth. That's phase two. That's called sanctification. And then phase three is called glorification. But that first phase of justification, that is a judicial act whereby God declares you forgiven. You are pardoned for your life's offenses against the Lord, even the ones that you will commit in the future. Because God, Ecclesiastes, I think it's verse 314. You might check me on this. I, you know, my memory fails me from time to time. Uh, but it says uh, that whatsoever God does remains forever, and there is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. And God has so worked that men should fear him, that they should respect him. You see, and whatsoever God does remains forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it because God is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. If he loves you, he loves you with a perfect love. If he sends Christ to the cross, it's a perfect act. And he's going to deal with all sin. He's not going to deal with some of it or most of it. He's going to deal with it perfectly, which means he deals with all sin. Now, when you sin, you're not in danger of the lake of fire. You might be in danger of a spanking, but you are not in danger of the lake of fire. Now, in addition, we have a new spiritual nature. You see, we're born again, and we have a new nature in Christ Jesus. And so we have a new spiritual nature, and we have the power to live righteously. You see, Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin that is released from its domineering, tyrannical power, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't let the sin nature take control of the, of, of, of the command center. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Stop. Can you as a believer uh, uh, present your body uh, as an instrument of sin? Yes. Otherwise, this whole directive would be, uh, would be superfluous. It would be absolutely unnecessary to even say it, except that it is in fact a possibility. He says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. You see, God wants us to live the righteous life. In fact, the, the last book I wrote was called Tares Among the Wheat, and the subtitle was Living Righteously in a Fallen World. Living Righteously in a Fallen World. Let me get on with the notes here so we can finish this on time. Uh, so during our time in this world, we still possess a sin nature. 
we still possess a sin nature. The sin nature is not eradicated. I ran into some real goofball troublemaker ministers some years ago. I used to work in jail ministry uh, for about 12 and a half years, and I worked at the taught classes, even taught undergraduate seminary classes at a nearby federal prison for five years. But we ran into some troublemakers uh, down at the Lubbock County Jail because they used to teach that at the moment of salvation that your sin nature was eradicated and you didn't sin anymore. And some of these uh, new believers that didn't have enough uh, doctrine to come in out of the rain, they bought into this sort of stuff, and it, it messed them up. It messed them up, and many of them thought they weren't saved because the obvious implication is, gee, I still feel like I want to sin. Uh, gee, I'm tempted to do this and that. I like to slug this guy for the way he's looking at me or, you know, so-and-so hurt me, you know. And you have all sorts of temptations. from, And so they just naturally conclude, I must not be saved. Boy, it took us a while to straighten all that out. But see, that's what false doctrine does. So we still possess a sin nature and occasionally yield to temptation. And by the way, for us, temptation can be either internal or external. Because you can be tempted from without. People can entice you into all sorts of sin. You can be laying in your bed all by yourself at 11 o'clock at night and have all sorts of mental attitude temptations about beating somebody up. Somebody offended you at work, and you're going to revisit that in your mind. And you're going to get all fired up, and you're going to create a mental scenario. You're going to have a whole drama inside your head. And you're going to have this person in your drama, and you're going to beat them up and choke them out. And then, uh, and then after they're laying there on the ground, you're going to throw some water on them and revive them and beat them up and choke them out again. And you're going to commit mental murder towards this person. You're going to, you're going to have a field day. Well, where'd that, where'd that temptation to sin come from? Internally, because you have the capacity and the proclivity to sin. It's called a sin nature. So occasionally we yield to sin, both internal and external. And we commit sin. We do. All right? Now, according to William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary, that's a good one to have if you can get it, he says, quote, Conversion does not mean the eradication of the sin nature. Rather, it means the implanting of the new divine nature with the power to live victoriously over indwelling sin, end quote. So you have two natures within you. You have two natures. Now, our acts of sin do not jeopardize our eternal salvation, which was secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does hurt our walk with the Lord. You see, every time you sin, you are operating according to your sin nature and you're operating according to Satan's world system. And by the way, we fight on three fronts. We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we have, we, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a triangulated attack. I'm telling you, 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 you know, and the sooner you understand this, the sooner you can put on your armor and defend yourself. But, but when we sin, it hurts our walk with the Lord and it stifles the work of the Holy Spirit within us whereby we grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit. And though we try to keep our sins small and few, I do. And by the way, not all sins are the same. Not all sins are the same. And we'll talk about this in the future too, because some sin... Do you know that under the Mosaic Law, there were 613 laws? And out of those 613 laws, if I remember correctly, 15 of them warranted the death penalty. Only 15. Now that right there tells you that not all sins are the same because some come with a greater punishment than others. And we'll talk about this in the future. So, you know, when, when, when we get, as we advance spiritually, we're, we're going to try to dislodge and dismantle and, and deconstruct those uh, sinful patterns in our lives. So we try to keep our sins small and few, but the reality is that we continue to sin in some days more than others. Or maybe I'm just confessing my own life here. I don't know. 
So as we grow spiritually, our knowledge of God's word, uh, through our knowledge and our knowledge of God's word, we will pursue righteousness more and more and sin will diminish, but sin will never completely disappear from our lives. I always think of Ecclesiastes 7.20, which says, There is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Now, living in the reality of God's word, we know three things are true when we sin. First, we know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though we have sinned against God, our eternal security and righteous standing before him is never jeopardized. We are eternally secure. Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they will what? Never perish. I give, give, ditto me in the Greek. Uh, present, active, indicative. Present tense, right now, truth. Active voice. Subject produces the action of the verb. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us eternal life. Indicative mood, declarative for a statement of fact. Eternal life is what you have. You will never perish. And you continue to possess the very righteousness of God that was imputed to us at the moment of salvation. Now, here in the future, we're going to spend a whole evening talking about imputed righteousness, because that is, I think, one of the most important doctrines in the New Testament. So uh, hold on to your seats for that one. We'll get around to that one, too. But we have to realize that when we sin, there's no condemnation. And when I sin, I know that if I die at that moment, heaven is still my home. Because Christ has, has paid my sin debt. It was finished. It was paid in full at the cross. There's nothing more for me to pay. And I have received the pardon. Records are sealed. That's it. So I know there's no condemnation. But the second thing is, is I know that, if, that when, I'm, when I commit sin, I know I've broken fellowship with God. So when we sin as a Christian, we have broken fellowship with God and we've stifled the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And these are things that we will unpack in greater detail in future lessons. We're again just hitting it here just to kind of touch on the subject of forgiveness. Now, if we continue with sin or we leave our sin unconfessed, we are in real danger of divine discipline from God. I think of in Psalm chapter 32 where David says, when I kept silent about my sin, notice that he's silent. He's, you see, he's not confessing his sin to the Lord. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, notice my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. The natural effects of sin began to have its, its effect on him. And then he says, for day and night, now this is divine discipline, verse 4. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. So God was putting the squeeze on David. That's what it means. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He was zapped. He had no energy. And this is divine discipline. Because he has gotten into a place of sin, and he's not, he's not dealt with. He's not confessed his sin. But notice in verse 5, he says, But I acknowledged my sin to you. Ah, see, now he's, now he's rebound. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See? So again, if we leave our sin, if we, leave, if we continue our sin or leave sin unconfessed, we're in real danger of divine discipline because he whom the Lord loves, Hebrews 12, 6 says, he whom the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines. Like a father, his own son, he scourges every son whom he receives. And it is for discipline that you endure. And notice God is dealing with you as sons, as children of God. For there is no son whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not even sons. In other words, God doesn't spank the devil's children. He only deals with his own. 
And so divine discipline, by the way, can be severe. It can even eventuate in physical death. And you can read 1 John 5, 16, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. They were believers. They're in heaven now. But they died the sin unto death. Now, the third thing that I know to be true when I sin is that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it, that he will forgive it and restore us to fellowship. 1 John 1, 9 is very simple. If... And in the Greek, that's a third-class conditional clause, which means maybe we will and maybe we won't. So it's up to us. You see, the ball's in your court. If I were playing checkers with you and I looked across the table and I said, it's your move, well, you'd know what I mean. Well, anytime you sin, guess what? It's your move. What are you going to do? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, and confess there from the Greek word homologeo means to say the same. It means that we say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. We call it what it is. We call it sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And that means he does the same thing over and over and over. So if you commit a sin 5,367.2 times and you confess that sin, God is faithful. And, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, being in fellowship with God means walking in, this, in the sphere of his light, being honest with him about our sin, and coming before his throne of grace. And Hebrews 4.16 calls it a throne of grace. Because as a child of God, you're not coming before a throne of judgment, you're coming before a throne of grace. That's a very different mindset. And again, we're going to touch on this here in grace in a, in a, in a very short order. So we're coming before his throne, his throne of grace in transparent humility and confessing that sin in order to be forgiven familial, uh, familially. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins every time we confess them because of the atoning work of Christ who shed his blood upon the cross for us. Concerning 1 John 1, 9, William MacDonald says, he says, quote, The forgiveness John speaks about here, that is in 1 John 1, 9, is parental, not judicial. You see, you see how this is, I mean, this is common language. This is common amongst, uh, amongst theologians. So what I'm presenting here is just uh, theology 101. So the forgiveness here is parental, not judicial. He goes on, he says, judicial forgiveness means forgiveness from the penalty, of sins, which the sinner receives when he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is called judicial because it is granted by God acting as judge. But what about sins which a person commits after conversion? As far as the penalty is concerned, the price has already been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But as far as fellowship, notice he's drawing that distinction there. As far as fellowship in the family of God is concerned, the sinning saint needs parental forgiveness, that is, the forgiveness of his father. He obtains it by confessing his sin. That's all that's needed. You confess it. When you confess your sin, you are back into the filling of the Spirit. Now, you might botch it in the next five minutes, but at least for that brief time, you had a window in which you were back in fellowship with God. So he goes on. He says, we need judicial forgiveness only once. Only once. That takes care of the penalty of all our sins. Notice, past, present, and future. I think that's the third time that's been mentioned by somebody in a quote here. But we need parental forgiveness throughout our Christian life, end quote. I confess my sins every day because I commit some mental attitude sin. I commit some verbal sin, whatever it happens to be. And if I sin against somebody, I go to that person. 
And when I come and I seek forgiveness, I never, never, never try to explain away my sin. I never try to excuse it or make light of it. I walk in and I say, I was wrong. I said so-and-so and I was out of line. Forgive me. And I seek forgiveness, but I just own it. I don't try to excuse it. Well, I was tired. I was hungry. You come. No, don't do that. Own it. Own it. And when I walk in and seek forgiveness, I just flat out, I own it, and I name it. Hey, I, I misspoke to you. I was completely out of line in that meeting. I, I you know, no excuse. And I, and I, and I, please forgive me. I mean, but I'll come in. You, you just have to own it straight out. Now, God's grace compels us to pursue righteousness and good works, which God has prepared for us to walk in them. But since we still have a sinful nature and live in a fallen world with temptation all around, we occasionally fall into sin. When we sin, we agree with God that we have sinned and we confess it to him, seeking his forgiveness. When we sin against others and wrongly hurt them, we confess our sin to them and ask for their forgiveness. Because our sin hurts others and their sin hurts us, there is need for love, patience, humility, and ongoing forgiveness among the saints. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 12-15, he says, As so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, notice, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, notice, bearing with one another, and what? And forgiving each other. Because what we receive from God should flow out of us in our relationships with other people. He goes on, he says, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just notice, just as the Lord forgave you, just as the Lord forgave you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you basically forgive others. How did the Lord forgive you? Out of grace. That's how he forgave you. So just as the Lord, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all this, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, end quote. All right, so I went a few minutes over, but that uh, concludes our lesson here on the subject of forgiveness. And we've only touched on this lightly. Trust me, we could, we could spend a lot of time here. But I'm only hitting these words, and I'm trying to cover this, uh, these words, doctrinally speaking, within uh, one hour. And so I'm trying to stay on course here. Uh, but, uh, but we've only touched on the two aspects of love biblically, which has to do with our relationship with God. One is judicial, the other is familial or parental. Uh, when I write my article here in a few weeks to talk about the other categories of love, you can read about that on my blog posting. Uh, so that'll, that'll touch on those other subjects. All right. Uh, so I'll stop sharing there. Do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? Any questions? No question, but uh, can I make a comment? Yes, please. Yeah, I think this is extremely helpful, what you've taught tonight, because so many believers get so confused. Why, if I've been forgiven my sins, why do I need to confess my sins to receive forgiveness of my sins? And Mm -hmm. it's because you've got judicial forgiveness and you've got parental, familial. Mm-hmm. I think the term experiential is another good term. I agree with you. That's a good word. I should have used that. Yeah. Your, your judicial forgiveness is one time in your justification. Mm-hmm. Your experiential forgiveness is ongoing in your sanctification. What Jesus said in John thirteen ten is that he who has bathed 
does not need to bathe again. He needs only to wash his feet. Two different words, luo Co- and nipto. That's exactly right. Luo, luo and nipto, uh-huh. Luo once, nipto ongoing. That's, so, that's a thousand... You've been in John. I taught through John a couple of years ago. We touched on that. You're absolutely 100% right. And those two words do communicate the once for all forgiveness, the, the total cleansing, and then the ongoing forgiveness. That's exactly right. I, I commend you on that. Thank you for that. I, and it's another good illustration. But go ahead. Go ahead and finish on your comment. Yeah, yeah. The, the other uh, point that you uh, mentioned that is connected is that as believers, we still have the old nature but we also have the new nature, mm-hmm. and that's part of your sanctification is learning how to stop living in the old nature and start living in the new nature. The analogy I like is that, hey, I only had one car before. I could only drive my old car before. I had one set of keys, one car. It was only possible for me to drive that one car, but now I've got two and I still have the keys to that old car, and I can decide every time I want to go out which car am I taking out, mm-hmm. and your growth to maturity is learning that don't get in that old car and go for a spin, or if you do, get it back in the garage and get back in the new car and mm-hmm. stay out of that old car and drive that new car. Yeah. No, that's that. right. That's a good analogy, yeah. I see some head, heads nodding here in the room, so thank you for that. And remind me your name again. Did I lose you? Sorry, it's uh, Judd. It's husband, Judd. Oh, Judd. Judd, okay. I, I see Winnie on the screen, so Judd, okay. Yeah. Thank you for that, Judd. I appreciate it. It's, it's a good insight. Paul, did you have a question or comment, sir? No, I did. Okay, thank you. Okay, Carol. Uh, Carol, did you have a question or comment? No, except I wish you could come and talk to my cousin's son and, <laughs> and one of my other cousins. <laughs> uh, well, they can, they can always listen to the podcast if they want to. I'll send out an email because I record these and then these go out uh, on my podcast channel. So um, if you want to share it, uh, maybe maybe they'll catch it that way. <laughs> well, one's in the hospital and I don't, he's lived homeless for several years. Uh. Someone decided to set him on fire. He lost one of his legs mm. and... Uh, they're trying to save his other leg, but mm. they're pretty sure they're they are going to set it. That's what happens when you're into drugs and you're homeless. That's so. exactly right. Exactly right. I'm surprised I even have a brain from the way that I lived. But yes, by the grace of God, no, Carol, you're absolutely right. Well, he's getting another chance, isn't he? Yeah. Well, God can continue to be gracious that way. That's for sure. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. Susan. Joey. Uh, Joey, remember to pray for him. We will be praying for Joey. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Susan, did you have a comment or question? What are you, a mind reader? <laughs> <laughs> I was no, just thinking no, we, we have been totally edified. Oh, well, thank and you. <laughs> we have been gifted by the additional chance that God gave you. Because he knew what you were capable of and what you could do. And so, yeah, Saturday nights, it's like, hmm. it's amazing. Well, thank you. So, I appreciate thank you that. Very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I feel like I'm a recipient of God's grace a thousand times over. I'll tell you, it's a, that is a, that is a, a doctrine that is just so deeply seated. And when I begin to study and teach on it, it's hard for me not to be emotional at times um, because I think about right. how he's blessed me and, 
I'm just, uh, man, I'm just constantly thankful, I'll tell you. So I appreciate your words, Susan. Thank you very much. Anybody else have any questions online? No? Anybody in the room here? We got any questions? Nancy, go ahead. At some point, I have been taught that um, you confess your sins to God, 1 John 1, 9, mm-hmm. but that it wasn't necessary to confess to another believer you know, that you'd offended. And I, I always thought that... that it was it, it was necessary for me mm-hmm. to tell someone I was wrong. When right. I said that. Well, there are passages in the Bible uh, where people will come and confess their sins. In fact, even Jesus even addresses that. Uh, you know, and Peter brought it up. You know, if my brother comes to me and right. you know, you know, confesses, you know, admits his sin seven times, you know, shall I forgive him? And he thought he was being super gracious at seven because you know three was three was like the rule of the day. If you were considered magnanimous, if you forgave the offender three times, and of course Jesus' reply was, you know, seventy times seven, and really it was beyond. It was just you know, it's use of a superlative language there, um, and that's hard. And by the way, that's done by faith, not feelings. That's a that's a faith response. That's a faith obedience response. And it's not done on the basis of feelings. Um, yeah, but anyway, go ahead. Well, Judy had said that, and they were in a Baptist church, and I guess talking about confession, confessing to each other, mm-hmm. and she said one of her friends, who they used to ride um, motorcycles off-road, and that the friend came up, and Judy said it made her very uncomfortable because the friend said, I'd just need to tell you that I was jealous because you rode bikes better than I did. Hmm. And Judy just said it made her feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. You know, she didn't... That was some, uh, like a private sin or something? Well, yeah, and that's one of those things where there's personal sins that people can commit against you in those sorts of moments. And you have to distinguish those sins that, again, are minor offenses as over against something that could be threatening. I can forgive... I mean, there was a woman who years ago hurt me deeply. And she, and she was a supervisor and she lied to me and she lied about me. And there was, I mean, it was nasty and she was very controlling and manipulative and, uh, real narcissistic. And I'll tell you what, I, I still, I still bear the marks of that, but, uh, I harbor no, no hatred towards that woman. Not so it is valid to be hurt. That's fine. Never to hate. Uh, and so we can have the former, but never the latter. And, you know, even Paul says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which says that you have to, not that you won't be angry, but you have to deal with it. And so this woman has not come, she's not apologized, she's not sought forgiveness, she's not sought reconciliation. In fact, she really hasn't changed her ways. And I have forgiven her, I've let that go. You know, Proverbs 19.11 says it is to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. It's to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. So I, I let that go. But I let that go because the Lord calls me to that. And, uh, and as long as she continues in her ways, uh, I don't want anything to do with her. And, uh, and so I will, I will, to a large degree, keep her at a distance. I mean, Paul even warned Timothy about Alexander the coppersmith. And he said, look, the man hurt me. He, he, he did me much harm. And Paul remembered that. And he warned Timothy to avoid this man. And so I don't think Paul harbored any hatred towards Alexander the coppersmith, but he sure wasn't going to go up and become buddy-buddy with him because the man hurt Paul. And Paul was so concerned about Timothy being hurt, he even warned Timothy about him. And so, you know, know, uh, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that that we do not 
uh, keep some people at a distance, because 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad associations corrupts good morals. And there's some people I love, I just, I just have to love them. I have concentric circles, so I, I have them in the outer circles out here. Right. And, uh, and because they're walking on a different path than I am, you know, I don't harbor hatred or bitterness towards them, but I'm, you know, I'm sure not going to welcome them into my inner circle. I mean, that's, you know. What Judy said was that she didn't, she didn't know that the woman had, I mean, it was something, you know, that the woman, I don't know, she felt like she should confess it, but Judy didn't know that the woman mm-hmm. had harbored any kind of jealousy toward her. Right, and sometimes it's the other person's problem, really, really not yours to deal with, so, yeah. But those things so, do pop up, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Stephanie, do you have any questions? Dan? Two things from uh, Facebook. Excellent study. Thank you from Joe Albert Jr. Okay. And in the chat on Zoom, please remember my neighbor Janet in prayer. Hmm. She's in pain and struggles with physical weakness. Okay. We'll be praying for Joey and for Janet. Okay. Anything else online? Anything from the crowd? <laughs> Stephanie? Oh, yeah. I wrote a lot of things. Okay. But, uh, I want to say that this was like so great. Thank you so much. I loved it. It was so wonderful. And I think um, with what Nancy was saying and a gentleman on here too, that and I agree that was something I put down. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of incorrect or not teaching at all about that the different types of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That forgiveness isn't just one type of forgiveness, like the judicial, you know, the parental. That there's different because, for instance, like. Um, I remember down in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, you know, it talks about if you do not forgive others, your father will not forgive your transgressions. Right. And a lot of people think, oh, if I have unforgiveness, then I'm, I'm not saved. I'm not forgiven. Right. But that's not talking about salvation forgiveness. It's a familial forgiveness. Exactly. You're right. Right. Because we are called to forgive. And right. to not forgive is an act of sin. Right. It means you're in defiance against the Lord. Right. And then also something that just came to mind mm-hmm. and, and talking about, like what Nancy was sharing that, like, for instance, the Catholic Church, that they'll go to Mass and mm-hmm. they'll ask for forgiveness to the, the priest or whatever, and he forgives their sins mm-hmm. and, you know, confess them privately and stuff. And, and the Bible talks, you know, over and over again, like the uh, people who are against Jesus, that only God can forgive sin. Mm-hmm. Only God can forgive sin. Right. But the there's other types other than judicial forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And so when we go and confess our sins to each other, it's not for the salvation aspect of forgiveness. Right. It's it's relational. Or it's relational. Right. Exactly. And that's why I, I use the word transactional, because right. a transaction right. occurs. Right. And, uh, right. and there can be a forgiveness, again, that's extended uh, by grace just because one chooses to forgive uh, because, you know, they're wanting to maintain the relationship with the Lord and to release that. Because, again, I use the illustration that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And I think that communicates in, in concept, you know. Um, but then there is the transactional forgiveness where there is actual reconciliation. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, again, that confusion that that's not taught, and, and it gets really muddy because mm-hmm. it's like, well, why would I you know, confess my sins to another person, and, you know, they're not God, they can't forgive me, but it's relational, and this right here talking about that God's not going to forgive you unless you forgive others, that's mm-hmm. because of that First John 1, 9, confessing your sin, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm, God forgive me not being forgiving mm-hmm. for others, it's a sin. <laughs> yeah, and, and confession, what that does is it restores us to fellowship so we can get back in the filling of the Spirit and back into a life of obedience so right. that we can get back into our walk with the Lord and the walk of faith. Right. Uh, Judd, you had a, a question or comment? 
Yeah, no, it's me. Oh, so okay, Wendy, I, yeah. I wanted to ask your opinion on this. Uh-huh. What if, what if there's people that you've absolutely forgiven, but you definitely do not want to do life with them? <laughs> is that is that acceptable biblically? You know, if there's people that repeatedly, repeatedly do the same underhanded things, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to do life with them. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, we're getting a lot of nods here in the room too, but that is that is correct. In fact, the article that I'll send out, and, and I and I may try to send it out relatively quickly on the four uh, kinds of sin that are mentioned in Scripture, because I actually address that issue. That if somebody continues in a certain uh, uh, destructive or harmful pattern, uh, you can disassociate from them. In fact, there's a passage, and we were oh years ago, I was teaching through Matthew. I'm drawn on some old memories here, so bear with me. I want to say it's in Matthew 14. I don't know why that keeps coming to my head. But there's a point where Jesus is giving advice to his disciples, to the apostles. And he's talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And in this particular verse, Jesus uh, gives new marching orders to the apostles. And the, the, the directive is, leave them alone. And those few words basically communicates new policy. Uh, for the apostles, because the Pharisees and Sadducees had demonstrated a level of recalcitrance, uh, of hard-heartedness towards God and toward others, uh, that eventually it got to the point to where even Jesus wasn't interacting with them. He, he starts talking to them in parables, which is really a form of judgment, because it's an encrypted form of language in which he's actually hiding the truth from them, because they don't want to hear it anymore. And so he says, all right, you want darkness? Fine, that's your choice. Uh, but he tells the disciples, leave them alone. And that means any time you run into them, you leave them alone. You don't interact with them. You don't engage them. You think of even in Matthew where Jesus says, do not, give your, do not cast your pearls before. So do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine lest they turn and attack you and, and uh, tear you up. And uh, Steve's paraphrased translation, by the way. And so, uh, but yeah, there's a point there where you can and should guard yourself against uh, people who uh, continue in a sinful pattern. And again, I think of it in terms of concentric circles. There are people that I will interact. I mean, even the lady who hurt me years ago, uh, I still see her on occasion. And when I see her, I'll greet her with a smile. I'll say, hello, good morning. Uh, would you like some coffee? I mean, I'll engage her. But as far as like having any interaction with her, no. No, she's a she's a she's a hothead. She's a firebrand. She's a control freak. I ain't I ain't I wouldn't go near the woman with the ten foot pole. I just don't want anything to do with. It. She's not safe. Now I can love her and I'll forgive her, and I'm not going to hold it against her. There's no hatred in my heart. In fact, I pray for her. I actually pray God bless her. I mean Romans twelve. You know, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Because sometimes you want to curse. You know. <laughs> But you don't do that. You bless them, and that's a walk of faith. But again, uh, that does not mean that you interact with them on a very personal level. So you're right. I mean, you can, you can, you can let the offense go, but that doesn't mean that you have to be buddy-buddy and, and enter back into a fellowship. Yeah, I, I have just, that was real. I'm really glad to hear you yeah. feel that way. Hmm. Um, there's just, I feel like there's some people that they feel that because it's a church thing, they can act any disgusting way, and because you're a Christian, and because you're in a Bible study, you've got to put up with it. 
And I just feel like it's like a low, instead of a Bible class, it's a, like a lonely hearts club. Oh. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah. And these people have to put up with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, they wouldn't put up, I wouldn't put up with it. And I can tell you right now, uh, my years of doing jail and prison ministry for 17 and a half years, I have thrown guys out of my class. Not physically. I mean, I may have wanted to grab them by their britches and toss them out the back door. But I have told them, you will. You will leave class now. And I, because if they're a disruption, in fact, here a few years ago, I was at another church. A friend invited me. He was a youth pastor and he invited me over to speak to his youth group. And these are 15, 16, 17-year-old kids. And there was probably about 25 kids in the group. And the youth pastor, my friend, was sitting there with his wife and they're at the table. And they know me. They know me. And so when I came in, we're doing this table discussion. Well, these two kids in the back, uh, two, uh, two healthy boys, probably about 16 or 17 years of age, I'm teaching through the Word of God. And during class, they're back there, and they're playing some game on their phone. And, and every now and then, the other kids are looking over, and they're being distracted by these two boys. And I stopped class. I stopped class. I got quiet. And when they, when they looked up at me, I said, gentlemen, you are a disruption to this class. Now, I am glad to have you here in my class, but let's be absolutely clear. The Word of God is being taught here, and the Word of God demands respect. And you, and you are a, distract, a distraction right now to other people here who are serious about their Christianity and who want to learn the Word of God. Now, you will either sit apart or depart, and the choice is yours. But you will not be a distraction in my Bible class, and you could have heard a pin drop. And, and my friend across the table, he smiled, his wife too, because they know me. And I looked at those boys, and we had a blinking contest for a few seconds, and you could have heard crickets. And I, finally I just said, do you want to stay or do you want to go? Because now's your option. You can depart. You're free to go. But you will not be a distraction in my class. And they both surprised me. They both said, yes, sir. I said, all right, phone's down in your pockets. And I said, if you stay, you will be quiet and you will pay attention, and you will not be a distraction to others. Are we clear? And they both said, yes, sir. And the rest of the 30-minute class went fine. It was absolutely fine. And I got with them after, I got with them after class. I said, look, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to bully. I'm not trying to, you know, you know, draw unnecessary attention, but you are, were a distraction. And that's unacceptable. And they said, yes, sir, we were. We apologized. And I said, okay, very good. Very good. Thank you for that. That's the proper response. Thank you for that. You're welcome to come back next time. But I don't tolerate that. I didn't tolerate it then. I don't tolerate it when I'm uh, preaching at the federal prison. Some guy who wants to start yak-yakking in the back of the class and wants to be a distraction, I'll, I'll, I'll tell him, look, I'll give him one warning. I'll say, look, we're teaching the Word of God. Stop talking. And some of these inmates, you know, they want to try to stare you down. Well, I'm not going to be intimidated that way. And uh, having done my fair share of time, I, I'm, I don't play by those rules. So I'll be respectful, but I'll be very serious about it. So that whole thing about tolerance. But you're right. Some of these churches and stuff they tolerate, uh, 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 that would not fly with Thank me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome, Winnie. Thank you for your comment. Say what? Susan. Uh, Susan, did you have something to? Uh, no. Uh, you took the words out of my mouth when you talked about pearls before swine, because that's what I was thinking of. Okay. The whole subject of... Um, uh, confessing your sins to somebody, I would think only if they concern that person directly and they're aware of them. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, there's so many uncomfortable things that you can do by unburdening yourself on some poor, unwary individual. 
And I would think that you would pray, pray, pray to God before you do that for direction, guidance in your words, mm -hmm. if you're going to do something like that. Mm. And if people don't change, if they continue to be the same way they've always been, then obviously they don't respect you and you have to put distance between yourself and them. That's exactly That's right. That's exactly but right. No, I agree with you 100%, Susan. By the way, if you if you look at the pattern, I'll be brief on this because I know we're running over. But if you look at the pattern throughout the Bible, uh, God has a a pattern of uh, of of division, where He will disrupt and divide. I mean, you you think back at the Garden of Eden. When God came in, and as a result of sin, he disrupted what was going on with Adam and Eve, and he divided them out. You think of it uh, during the time of the flood on the earth, when the sinfulness of man became great. God sends a flood, he disrupts the world, and he separates out Noah and his family. You think about the Tower of the Babel, where God comes down and he disrupts the languages, and he divides out the people and separates the nations. You think about the Exodus, where God comes down uh, into Egypt, and he disrupts what's going on, and he divides people out. And several times, even in the Gospels, Jesus made it very clear. He said, look, I've come to divide the members of a household. And God's not about destroying the family, but he is about truth. And he knows that by presenting truth, there will cause division. So division is something that you find is a key pattern. In fact, the greatest uh, 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 disruption and division that has ever happened in the history of the human race was when God the Son came into this world and took upon himself humanity. Because he really caused some disruption and he divided people out. And so this sort of thing is something that you actually find to be a biblical concept. And so this, this thing about, uh, about separating ourselves out from people, well, we can love people, but the issue is, is very simple, is bad associations corrupt good morals. And there's a point where I, I love people. I have a family member who's been homeless for a number of years, done two, two, two uh, tours of duty in prison uh, environments, and you know he's been homeless for about five, five and a half years total, and uh, he has not changed his ways, and he wanted to come out to, uh, to my house one time, and, and I just said, no, I said, uh, you're not welcome, and he said, why not? I said, for the same reason I won't let an unclean dog or an untrained dog in my house, because I don't, I don't need the crap. And well, you don't have to talk that way. I said, well, you know, you haven't, you haven't changed. I love you, but, uh, but you know, you don't, you don't own your life. You're not responsible. You don't love the Lord. You, you, you take advantage of everybody, and everybody you run into uh, winds up being hurt. I don't need it. I've got it's a home. It's nothing like the truth. It's nothing, nothing like the truth. truth. Right. And, he, and, and if he changed, he's welcome to come to my house. But otherwise, no. Yep, I get it. Totally yeah. get it. Yep. It's very hard to tell the truth, you know, if you're worried about somebody's feelings. But yeah. if you can do it then it's excellent. Yes. Somebody has to tell them. Yes, and Jesus loved people enough to tell them the truth, even if yes, they hated him because of it. Yes. And, that, and that's not easy, but I think, it's a, I think it's where we eventually get to in the place of maturity at times. Yep. All right. Thank you for that, Susan. That was wonderful. Any other questions or comments? Stephanie, did you, did you, you had one other? Okay. Yeah, I have a couple things, but they're, they're tied into each other and some of the, uh, with some of the things that everybody was saying. So, like, with Winnie, you know, I'm going to thank you for sharing... So some of the things I wrote down is forgiveness and reconciliation. They go hand in hand, but they're not the same thing. Right. Reconciliation, forgiveness right. and reconciliation go hand in hand, but they're not the same thing. Right. So forgiveness, you can forgive someone. Reconciliation doesn't necessarily mean you come back into relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And that is a choice of not just the forgiver, but also the person being forgiven or the entity. Like, for instance, you know, I have a brother, you know, that, that's like your brother or like Winnie, the people she was describing... For one, I can forgive him, 
But if he hasn't changed, that and he's not willing, reconciliation can't take place. That's because correct. Reconciliation with two people or two entities or whatever can't take place with just one person choosing that. Right, but that same language is employed with God and us. Exactly. God, yes. God very much wants to yes. extend forgiveness, and he's done everything he, he can through the cross to deal with the subject of our sin. Right. But, but reconciliation between us and God will not happen until we turn to Christ and right. receive that forgiveness of sins, right. and then we enter into a relationship. But you're absolutely right. right. Reconciliation follows that, but yes, it has to absolutely. be received. Right. And I just, you know, I have written those things down, but like, for instance, and that does bring freedom, because like Winnie was saying, you know, it sounded like she had a relief knowing that, mm-hmm. and it is a relief when you learn that, mm-hmm. because it's like you question yourself, am I being sinful? Am I being hurtful? Am I being wrong towards somebody or towards God? Right. Especially, you know, when you learn, no, you're not, you know, that that's like a freedom, a relief. Um, but definitely reconciliation to the thoughts that I had that um, Colossians, or hold up, I'm sorry. Oh, so Colossians, yeah, Colossians 1, 1, 19 through 20, uh-huh. it talks about how God reconciled us to himself. Mm-hmm. So God forgave us. Mm-hmm. Everybody, in a judicial manner, mm-hmm. he reconciled us to himself by Christ being on the cross. But that reconciliation, parentally, familiarly, all that stuff comes when we repent and turn to him. Mm-hmm. Just like if, if me and my brother, and we can't reconcile, although I've forgiven him, you know, it, it's going to take him repenting, him changing, turning around his behavior, his actions, in order for us to completely reconcile. Mm-hmm. And so I was seeing that, like, with God in us. Although he reconciled us to himself, although he forgave us judicially, we still have to turn to him. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? Does yeah. that make sense? It has to be received. We right. have we have to acknowledge that we have given offense, yes. that we are guilty. Right. That we cannot fix it. Right. He, in his graciousness, has extended forgiveness to us right. via the cross. Right. And if we come to him on his terms, on his terms, right. then we can receive forgiveness and be reconciled to him and enter into a relationship with him. Right. right. But but that but all that has to happen right. for that uh, to eventually come about. Right. One other thing. Okay, Stephanie, go ahead. A really awesome thing. You yeah. said, pardon forgives forgets. Right. So some people think if I forgive a human being, I'm going to forget it. But memory, like in your notes, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't allow us to forget. Right. You know, and, but God, if we're born again, oh, sorry, Ephesians 1.13 says that if we hear the word and we believe in him, that we're sealed yep. with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So he's able to forget mm-hmm. because of that sealing. He forgives and he forgets mm-hmm. because of that. And That's I a good way to put it. So That's yeah. awesome. Thank you for that. That's yeah. good. I was like, man. And then I thought, whenever we're... But yeah, anyways, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. I love that. You have a good mind. Good <laughs> theological mind. Paul may have something. Paul, did you have something, buddy? No, I mean, you had asked me earlier if I had anything to say. Uh, that I was going to talk about uh, the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness, but... Mm. Uh, uh, I, I just decided not to bring it up at this point, but somebody else mentioned it, so uh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, you have a very good theological mind, too. I always have to be careful when I'm talking in your presence. So, All right, everybody. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? 
Dear Father, we thank you so much for this uh, time of fellowship together in your word. We thank you for your word, which gives us insights into realities about things that we could never know except that you have spoken. And what you have spoken has been recorded, it has been inscripturated, it has been written down for our benefit. And Father, we thank you that we can take this time to go through your word, that we can study these things, and that we can understand these things and benefit from them, from the truths that help to liberate us from false ideas and and harmful situations. And Father, we just pray that in the days and weeks ahead that we will continue to be challenged by these things that we might grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We praise you so much. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.